morning. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles together to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Um, as you're turning there, we start a seven-week study of the seven deadly sins. Um, the category that you want to put this series in is Christian ethics. So this is ethics. Uh, what is ethics? Well, how are we supposed to live? How are uh, we supposed to follow the command that being made new in Christ, we put off the old self and we put on the new self, made after the image of God in true righteousness and holiness? What does that look like in the real details of life? We can say that, and everyone agrees with that, but what does it actually look like to become more like Christ, which is the point of your life, <laughs> to know Christ and to become like Him? And as Trevor prayed, that is what brings glory to God. That is why one reason why the glory of God will fill the earth uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, because all of His people will be perfect, living without sin. And so we're not going to get there in this life, but we want to make progress. We want to push forward. We want to pray that the Lord would make us more like Jesus so that we might be happier as we enjoy God more, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. That is the purpose of our life. So I want to challenge you to memorize the traditional vices and virtues as we thought about it in Christian tradition. So there are seven vices, I'll read them, envy, vainglory, sloth, greed, anger, gluttony, lust, and we'll define those over these weeks. And there are seven virtues uh, that we have typically associated with the Christian life. Three are theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, and then what have been known as the cardinal virtues, which... Um, coming out of the Latin just means kind of like source or root uh, of many other virtues, so kind of a head virtue. Wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. I'll let you look up temperance and find out what that means. Um, faith, hope, love, wisdom, justice, courage, temperance. So if you can have those just down cold, I think that would be good for all of us to have those categories. Um, so let's read from John 15, beautiful statement by Jesus to his disciples and to us. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that for the glory of Christ, you would shape us into the image of Christ. Lord, that we would see and savor Jesus, not abstract moral qualities, but the character of Christ. And I know your heart and my heart, Lord, for 
these brothers and sisters, is that Christ might be formed in us. And as Paul was in the agony of childbirth, metaphorically for Christ to be formed in your people, he was mirroring your heart. Lord, that is my heart. And I pray for our people today that um, this, these messages would not be primarily discouraging, that they wouldn't be discouraging at all. Lord, they would be encouraging and, and calling us up into something better to root out the things that ruin our lives and to put on the things that make them beautiful and wonderful and hopeful. So I, I can't do that, Lord. I ask for you to be working, your spirit to be working powerfully in the lives of your people, that we might open ourselves up to where you want us to go, maybe not easy places, uh, maybe difficult places, but good places nonetheless. So we ask, Father, for the forgiveness of our sins in the name of Jesus Christ, and we believe that we have that assurance of forgiveness. We believe that despite even this week, even this morning, our half-hearted love for you and for others, that Jesus has paid it all and that we are going to heaven. We will dwell with you in righteousness and holiness forever. For all those who have trusted in Christ, this is the promise of God, and we believe it. So may you instill in us, once again, another Sunday, your love, your grace, your faithfulness, your kindness, your generosity, your goodness. Lord, these are what we build our life on, and for any who are not, I pray that they would. I pray that they would come, come to the fountain be cleansed. Come to the rock and stand. Come to the Savior and be saved. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. Ready or not, thanks for showing up today, first of all. Uh, we'll see how that goes over the course of this series. It will help if it's not negative 44, I think, to... Uh, a few people in the seats, but um, why do we do this? Why do we take the time to go through virtue and vice? I want you to know I preach on it not to beat you up, but to build you up. That's my heart. I believe that God wants us to gain a self-knowledge that is both frightening, but also liberating. That can be scary, but in the end is good to understand our own hearts better, to understand the people and events that have shaped our habits because it's not just a lot of our habits are shaped by things that happen to us and around us, people around us, and to understand how to develop Christ-like character. That's what you're meant for, to become like Jesus, to be holy as he is holy through his grace and power. The truth is to really deal with the sin in your life you need to understand it. Just like a doctor has to understand the problem to, to prescribe the right solution. If you've ingested poison, you've got to know what kind of, what is it? What, how do we, what is the antidote? 
and that will take courage. Um, most people, I think, even many Christians, you just don't want to go there. You do not want to go there. It's too dark. The patterns are too deep. I, I mean, honestly, I don't really want to know. I don't want to know what my vices are. I don't want to know what the patterns are. I, I just, maybe you can, you know, trim me up a little bit around the edges, but I don't want to go that deep. Praise God, the gospel sets you free. God already knows how dark it is, and Jesus has paid it all. At the cross, it was finished, and it is finished for you. So you can be honest without fear. You can go to those places without, oh my gosh, is that really what I'm like? Yeah, and you're probably still not getting to the bottom of it. And that's okay. God loves you. We need to hear the gospel first because that frees us to pursue this great calling and privilege of change. To put off the old self and to put on the new. To kill the weeds of sin and to cultivate the garden of Christ-like character. Um, you, you can't read the New Testament and not find that. It's, it's just everywhere. I was listening to Ephesians 4 last night, and it just amazes me how direct Paul is, how clear he is. You're a Christian? Don't be like this anymore. Be like this. It's just, there it is. You must. You must. It's worthy of our intentionality. It's worthy of our focus. It's worthy of our effort. John Stott once said, holiness is not a condition which we can drift into. You don't drift into holiness. You drift away from God, not toward God. You drift into sin, not toward righteousness. It takes work, effort, intentionality. You're always becoming someone. Who is that person that you are becoming? Who is that person at the end of your life on the last day that you will be before you go home. You say, well, I'm going to go home. I'm going to be with Jesus. I'm going to be perfect. Does it really matter? It does. It does matter. Now, that doesn't mean you depend on yourself to change. God does the work. God does the surgery. But you have to walk to the operating table and lay on the bed. <laughs> I've been in... Uh, a number of surgeries in my very, very young life. Uh, that's what happens when you snowboard into lift poles. Generally, that's going to end up in a surgery situation. It certainly did for me. And I went to the surgery, and uh, I didn't do the heavy lifting. I didn't replace my anterior cruciate ligament, but I had to walk to the table and lay on the bed. That was my job. That was my role. I had to show up. I did have to do something. I had to put myself in a position to be healed. This is what spiritual disciplines are. We're going to talk a lot about those over these seven weeks, but we talk about a spiritual discipline. You are opening up space in your life for God to work. You are putting yourself in a position through effort for the Holy Spirit to change you. So, is it dependent on you? Can you fix yourself? Can you change your own heart? No, absolutely not. 
but you can put yourself in position for God to work. You can apply effort and discipline, whether that's, I mean, we think of traditionally reading my Bible, having time of prayer, um, coming to church, Lord's Supper. Yeah, absolutely, and beyond. And we're going to talk about more, but I want to be clear on that. It's that partnership of, yes, we put ourselves in position for God to work, and God does the work. So uh, let's start here. What is a vice? What is a virtue? A vice is not an individual sin. It's not a once in a while thing. I have a moment of wanting a new truck because of the status that it might give me in the community. Everybody sees me driving that truck. I kind of covet it. I want it. I can't really afford it, but I want it. Okay, not good, but that's more of a one-off situation. You, you realize it. You turn. You repent. You ask God for forgiveness. Lord, I, I, I need to be content. Help me to be content. Now, if that continued... Over and over and over again, you have maybe a vice of vainglory. I want people to notice me. I want people to think well of me. I want to be approved of. But if it's once in a while, that's not a vice. A vice is a habit of sin that forms your character. A vice is a habit of sin that forms your character. A virtue is a habit of godliness that forms your character. And whether good or bad, these are things that over time become easy, second nature, instinctive, like putting on your seatbelt, you don't even think about it. It just comes out of you. There's a big sledding hill in Sioux Falls we go to. Um, I discovered it because it's across the street from the tennis shop that Doug sent me to one time. I was like, oh, that'd be a good sledding hill. So we started to go, and last year we noticed there were two, uh, two paths, two well-worn grooves on the hill where sleds had been going down all the time, day after day. And what we noticed about those paths, those grooves, is that you went really fast. It was really easy to go down the hill. It was hard to turn because you're like in it, and you can't get out of it. We also noticed that trying to form a new groove, a new path, was difficult. So the snow was fluffier, it was thicker, you know, you're pumping your arms, so just try to get going, get some speed. You spin off to the side a lot easier. Your character is like that. Things that you do, whether good or bad, whether sinful or righteous, if you do them over and over again, they get easier. You, you come to them faster. It's harder to stop. It's harder to turn and change. If you persist in something, if you do it again and again and again, it is harder to stop both in a positive and a negative sense. No one becomes a smoker overnight. You know that? First time you smoke one of those Virginia Slims, what do you say? You cough. 
That's disgusting. I'm never doing that again. Why did I do that? Why do people do this? It's gross. And then you do it again. And again, and again, and again. And you push through that difficulty to the point where smoking a cigarette is just second nature. You didn't even realize, you didn't even think about it. It just feels so natural. Character is like that. Virtue and vice is like that. At first, even sin. I mean, you know that. When you cross a line in your conscience with sin, you either say, okay, I need to go back across that line, not do that again, or you're like, next time it's a little easier. And a little easier, and a little easier, until you don't even feel it anymore. We want to understand, where are the sinful grooves in my life? Where have I made ruts? Where have I made patterns? And we want to turn out of them as hard as that is. And it's hard, especially the longer it's been. And form new ones that lead to life and joy and peace. Um, and each of you is at a different place, a different point in developing your character. Um, some of you, the grooves are deep, both positively and negatively. It's just had more time. And I want to say, you can still change. The power of God is no less in you than anybody else. If you've been a Christian a long time, you're like, well, you know, can't keep teaching old dog new tricks. The Holy Spirit can. Okay? He's a person whisperer. He can teach you new tricks. He can help you. So don't give up. Expect to change. If you're in Christ, we should expect to change. Now, if you're younger, you haven't set those grooves yet, or at least not very deep. And so you have an opportunity, if you will listen, if you will take to heart what is going to be said the next seven weeks, it can help you so much. It can help you spare you from so much pain and the people around you from so much pain. Where does God want to lead you? Be open to that. There isn't happiness ever anywhere else. That's what I can say. Only emptiness, only enslavement. C.S. Lewis once said, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. No more slums. No more mud meals. May God lead us step by step toward the sea. That's why we talk about this. That's why we go here. We start with envy. And um, I think most of these messages will have a problem-solution structure, so we want to explore the problem, the sickness, and then the solution the cure. So let's start with the problem. As Christians, we should think of all sin as deadly. All sin separates us from God, destroys our lives, basically. That's what it does. But Christian tradition has identified seven capital or deadly sins or vices because they are the sources of many other sins. So you can picture sin as a tree. And it is. It's organic. It's dynamic. It grows. It moves. It changes in your life. The trunk and the roots of that tree is pride. Pride is the first sin. 
of the devil. Pride is the root of all sin. I know better than you, God. I can run my life better than you. I am smarter. I am wiser. I am better. That's the root of all sin, but that, that sin grows up, and there are main branches, and that's these vices that we're going to talk about that spin off into many other little sins. So if pride stays alive, sin stays alive. Whenever I reject God's ways and His Word, I nourish death. I nourish sin. We want to cut off the branches, replace them, starting with envy. And here's the essence of envy. You want something you don't have, and you want someone else to lose what they do have. So the dynamic is, I'm here, someone else is here, I want it to go like this. I'm inferior, they're superior, I want it to go like this. I don't want to just go up, I want them to go down. It's an inferior and superior dynamic. Everyone who struggles with envy feels inferior. Um, example, you want to be prettier so that you'll be thought well of, you'll be glanced at by people, you'll be noticed, you'll feel good about yourself, and you want the person who is prettier than you to get a really bad case of acne. You want them to get a tragic haircut. You want them to wear clothes they think fit and they don't. While you dress nicely that day, so you compare. You want to lose a little bit of weight, look healthier, be, feel better, and you, you kind of want them to gain a little weight. So you see that person who you think is a little bit prettier, a little bit better than you by the dessert table at the church potluck, and you're rooting for them. You know you want some. Lemon bars, you love those. Take two in your mind. Of course, you don't say it, but you're rooting for them to gain a few pounds this holiday season while you are very disciplined because that's, that's going like this. I'm going up, they're going down. In the Christian tradition, envy is not exactly coveting. Now, there's overlap. But it's not exactly coveting. David coveted Bathsheba, but he didn't seem particularly uh, to enjoy Uriah's death. That would have been envy. I want what you have, and I want you out of the picture. It's not exactly jealousy. Um, there's overlap, but jealousy is, is either that selfish desire to have what someone else has, or you feel threatened that you, something you love is going to be taken away. There's a good kind of jealousy that God has and that we can have for our spouse, for example. But it's, envy is not exactly jealousy. Envy is all about identity. Envy is all about identity. You are fundamentally insecure. If you struggle with envy, that means you are, you're down deep, you're insecure. You don't truly believe you are loved and cherished unconditionally by God, that you are worthy in Christ, it's, it just hasn't come home. You feel inferior, and you feel helpless to do anything about it, and no one wants to feel that way. It's a terrible feeling. So you lock on to someone else who has it better, and you slowly begin to hate them. 
And of course, underneath that is hatred of God. That's the sin under the sin. He's the one who gave you the raw deal. He's the one who didn't give you the life you should have had. And so I hate God. In my pride, I hold the all-wise, always good God responsible for not giving me the life I deserve. We love the movie The Incredibles. Uh, it's a, in the film The Villain Buddy Syndrome. He's uh, uh, consumed with envy. He feels insecure. He feels inferior to Mr. Incredible. And so he moves from idolizing him to hating him. He wants the power, the fame, the significance that he has, and, and he wants everyone who has that to lose it. Okay? If I can't be super, then no one can. If I can't have it and I'm helpless to get it, then no one's going to have it. Um, does it work? Does it make him happy to destroy and humiliate people while artificially propping himself up, being consumed by that mission? It's a great movie because, in part, it shows the progression of that vice. It shows how it moves, how it, how it works, how one thing to the next, he just devolves into self-destruction. One author says, of all the deadly sins, only envy is no fun. You are miserable. <laughs> you have created a living hell for yourself when you envy someone. Um, how do you recognize it? What are the signs of envy? Um, here's a few. You tend to measure yourself against other people. You compare. Do you internally compare yourself to other people? Is that game being played in your mind a lot? You're defensive. All these have to do with insecurity. So the, the insecure person has to defend themselves, their honor, their pride, because they're really not confident of who they are. So I snap at you. I'm defensive. You say something even could be uh, uh, taken in a negative way, and I have to say something back. You're not happy for the good fortune of others. In fact, you're kind of rooting for their bad fortune. You wouldn't say it maybe, but you're... You see something on social media, something bad happened to them, and hmm, hmm, quietly your heart rejoices. You assume the worst about people's motives. You talk negatively about someone behind their back, even if it's true. Well, it's true. Why can't I say it? Oh, okay. Let's unpack that. That's slander. <laughs> Teasing. Bullying, ridiculing. Again, the root is insecurity, and I'll, I'll guarantee you that a bully has envy. A bully has someone that he wants to be or she wants to be and is not, and so I tease you, I bully you, I ridicule you. And I'll say this. Child bullies, if they don't address the issue, become adult bullies. And I know this is something we kind of accept in our families, like, you know, teasing and making fun of and, oh, yeah, you know, it's just kids being kids. I, be careful. Because if that goes unchecked, 
And someone is allowed to cultivate that vice of I can bully someone to make myself feel better artificially, it doesn't just go away because you turn 21. It has to be addressed intentionally in your heart. And, and I've, there are many adults who they filter it better, they're more subtle about it, but they are bullies. They're going to put you down so that they are raised up. Passive-aggressive remarks. You have to say something critical. You can't just say something nice. Or someone says something nice to you, and you have to, well, I'm, I'm really not that great. I'm this bad. Insecurity. You're generally just unable to enjoy good things in your life. An envier is typically miserable. And, and additionally, and this is important, you're almost always going to envy someone who is similar to you. Similar age, similar season of life, similar, um, similar things that you want to be good at. So someone is good at something, you want to be good at that thing, that's a candidate for envy. I'm probably going to be tempted to envy another pastor. Um, similar age, a peer, someone who is in a similar season of life, ministry, who is succeeding in a way that I would like to succeed and maybe don't feel like I am. Um, and if I give in to that temptation to compare myself to that person, well, he's really good at this. and I don't feel like I am. What does that say about me? My bad pastor? Should I even be in ministry? If I give in to that, if I let that fester, I will slowly begin to be bitter at that person and resent that person. Not be happy that they're doing well or that God has called them into ministry because look how gifted they are. I'm making it about me and I will slowly begin to hate them. I'm not going to be envious personally of a veterinarian who knows a lot about horses. Brooke, wherever you are, you're safe, okay? I'm not going to envy you because I don't care about that. As important as it is, not saying it's not important, I don't care. You know, it, it, my identity is not wrapped up in how much I know about horses. It's just not. That's just not who I am. My kids can ask me a question about horses. I can say, I have no idea, and I don't feel the least bit insecure saying that. What's wrong with me? I should know that. Why does she know that, and I don't? I don't care. But someone who is good at something you want to be good at, that's a candidate for envy. And I'll tell you, men tend to envy men. Women tend to envy women. Am I right? You tend to envy someone you might have been if life had treated you better. I thought my life was going to end up like that person, but it hasn't because of this. I don't really like them. Because they threaten you. They threaten you at your core. You're trying to build your life on something that they have, and you don't. Beauty, social skills, athletic ability, money, Job success, wisdom, getting married, having a good marriage, having kids, having good kids, 
being in ministry, etc. All good things, not bad things, but things that maybe you don't have and you want. This is what happened to Joseph's brothers. You remember the story, Genesis 37. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. What did they want? To be favored by their dad, to be loved more by their dad. Not necessarily wrong. Why? To feel secure, to feel I matter. I have significance. I have value. Joseph got in the way. And you can see it happen progressively. You know it happened progressively. Little, little moments where maybe Jacob said something kind to Joseph and not to them. A little bit of envy. Maybe Joseph has a little bit of arrogance. Little moments of he feels that favor. And then he gets a coat of many colors. Well, that sends him over the edge. And they hate him. And secretly try to sabotage and destroy his life. I mean, that's the end of this. That's what happens. Grooves that are just grooved slowly but surely over time so that it, in the end it's easy. Envy never goes well. It just eats you up. It, it destroys your relationships. What's the cure? What's the solution? The solution to envy is finding your security in something solid. Something that fills all the holes in your heart, something you know can never be taken away, namely the love of God. You have to know the love of God. This is the only thing in the universe you should build your life on. I'll just say, if you have not built your life on Jesus Christ and Him alone, this is the only thing that will never fail you, is the love of Christ. It is unshakable, it is unbreakable, it is a secure foundation for your life. And if that is not what you're building your life on, you're building your life on sand. Sinking sand that will fail you. If it hasn't yet, it will. If you know the love of Christ, if you know that you are loved unconditionally, you don't have to be anyone else. You don't have to be anything else. You can just be you. And whoever God wants you to be, whatever life he's given you, he holds your lot, the psalmist says. He holds your life. He holds everything that happens to you. And he loves you. Listen to Scripture, John 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide. Stay. Rest. Enjoy. Remain in. Bask in. You know, at, at the end of a, a long winter, when you go outside on a sunny day and it's warm and you just, I do this, okay? It feels so good. That's what we have to do with the love of God. We have to just take a moment to take it in. And this is the discipline, guys. You can't just say it. Oh, I know God loves me. Oh, yeah, grace of God. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's good. You have to think about it. 
You have to bask in it. You have to slow down and think, God, out of all the sinners in the world, he chose me. He loves me. He set his love on me forever. I know how bad I am. What was he thinking? And yet he did. He loves you because he loves you. That's it. Like you love your children when they're born. Just because they're your children. Have they done anything? Did you tell them, you know what, they're crying a little bit less next door. Could you cry a little bit less, please, before I love you? Could you do something? Could you walk? Could you hug me? Could you give me anything here because I'm waiting? No, you just love them. And if they knew that your love was conditional, would that not hurt you? You have to do something in order for me to love you. Grandparents. If your grandkids thought that your affection was conditional on something they had to do, would that not hurt you? Well, I, I mean, whoa, we're not going to give hugs quite yet. I mean, we'll see how you do on junior high tennis team. All right? You know, if, if we're moving up to varsity, then maybe I'll come in. This is how God loves you. Like we love a newborn baby that has given us nothing. It's just here. And we got to get that into our heads. This is how God loves us. You, you have nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. God's love for you can never be more or less than it is right now in Jesus Christ. You know why? Because He never changes. He is always holy. He is always perfect. And God's love for you is refracted through Jesus. Oh, that's good news. So you can have a terrible week, a terrible month, a terrible year. Doesn't change anything. That is the ground. That is the solidity. That is what you need to put off envy. A new source, a different source, a real source, a powerful source of security. I am God's and He is mine. One author says it this way, a self secure in its unconditional worth, a worth based on God's love is a self free to affirm others' gifts without feeling threatened and thereby made inferior. It is a self free to love without anxiety that it will be compared to another and found wanting. It is a self able to take joy in its own good and the good of others. If you can take joy in someone similar to you who's good at something you want to be good at, and you're like, I'm so happy you're good at that because you're enjoying it and it's bringing glory to God, you are free. have to be intentional about it. It's not just going to happen. New grooves in your brain, your heart. Let me give you three briefly disciplines to fight envy. Number one, practice common goods. 
Practice common goods, meaning you enjoy something good without any ambition, any scorekeeping, any comparison, any rivalry. (laughs) Enjoying music, taking a walk with a friend, good books, films, good conversations, cooking, baking, gardening, hobbies, whatever. But here's the kicker. You have to enjoy those things without thinking of someone else. Well, I burned it a little bit. I'm sure so-and-so wouldn't have. (laughs) My garden's not as good as it was last year, or that other person, I saw their garden, saw their tomatoes. You're just doing it for the sake of itself, the good of itself, not to be better than anyone else. Whatever it is, sports, oh, my goodness. How much envy is there? Oh, and I'm speaking from experience. You don't say, I'll learn to play the piano if I can be better than April. First of all, it's probably not going to happen unless you go Tanya Harding on her or something, break her fingers. It's a little dark, sorry. <laughs> that is a great example of envy, Tanya Harding. Some of you, the, what's the gen, what generation are you? The young kids, Chase. Z, the Zs are like, who is that? We don't know who she is. YouTube it. But secondly, when you live like that, you suck the joy out of life. The good things that God gives you, you're not enjoying them because you're thinking about someone else. Am I as good as them? Number two, zeal. Just a godly zeal. Basically, you see somebody has something you don't or is better than you, and instead of letting it make you bitter, you let it inspire you. You have a godly zeal to get better because your worth, your significance are secure so you can humbly pursue excellence rather than wishing for someone else to be more mediocre. Tracking with that? It's just they're here, and I want to... For the glory of God and for the pure enjoyment, get there too. Not bring them down. This is what the church is meant to be. We're supposed to be inspiring each other, guys. Just seeing the good and the gifts and the graces and just, I want to be more like Gordy in this way. I want to be more like Lauren in that way. I want to be more like Sandy in this way. Not, I want to beat them. (laughs) I want to be better than them. This is one of the blessings of our community. Let let the people around you not be your competitors, but let them be your coaches. Learn from them. Watch them. Study them. Ask them, how did you get there? How can I grow? They are not an obstacle to your happiness. They can be a partner in it. If you let them, if you humble yourself. Number three, gratitude. Envy is the habit of believing the narrative that your life is not good enough. Gratitude destroys that narrative with the truth that you always have a life better than you deserve. And that's saying something because there are some pretty sad, terrible things. 
But when we start of who we are in our sin and what we deserve and we work up from there, boy, the, the, the list of gratitude is endless. And if you run out of stuff to be grateful for, think harder. Start over. And be specific. This is, a, this is a discipline. This is a practice. When you wake up in the morning, when you have dinner together as a family, when you go to bed at night, when you tuck the kids in, whatever you're doing, that you name specific things. I am grateful. I didn't deserve this today. I was grateful yesterday, and I named it out loud, praise God, for a house. Because when I went outside, I thought I was going to die. Thank you, Lord. I know there are people in the world who do not have a house that keeps them warm. And I'm very thankful for that. that just the act of doing that, you see how that humbles you, that lowers you, that, that kills pride? Alternatively, I could have thought, man, I'm smart to buy this house. It was really smart to put these new windows in that are nice and sealed tight. And, you know, I did that. Or I hired someone to do that. You see the difference? Gratitude humbles you. Gratitude kills the sense of, I should have it better. And I'm, I hate you for having it better than me. Let me say this. If there's someone God is bringing to mind or brings to mind that you've struggled with envying, I don't think you should feel you have to confess that to them. Well, maybe God leads you to do that. But I think maybe a better path for that person is just to begin to love them, be kind to them, care about them, pray for them, um, take an interest in them. That will change your heart. That will change your relationship to them. You'll see them um, not as a competitor, but as a companion, more and more as you do that. And I know that that can be, we probably have someone. We probably, I, I have people that I think of, you know, i got to watch it. I don't, I don't think we necessarily need to rush and tell them that, maybe, but put on something different in how we relate to them and approach them. So... It's a lot. It's going to be a lot every week, but I just want to close by saying it's going to be okay. God loves you. God is for you. And I think he would want you to hear him say, I am making you new. Just wait for me to finish. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your sanctifying work. You are the Lord and giver of life. We ask for new life to keep bubbling up in us. And perhaps, Lord, for the first time today, I, I pray for some here, some listening, that new life would bubble up in their heart for the first time. That they would position themselves on the operating table and they would say, God, please give me a new heart. Please change me. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he rose on the third day for me. And I commit my life to you. I give my life to you. I trust what you say in your word. 
Lord, you always start what you finish. You promise to bring to completion the good work that you have begun in us, and you always do. We can trust that. No matter how we feel, no matter how discouraged we are, no matter how deep the conviction goes, you always finish what you start. So help us now to just go there in our mind, both to your love and also to your call to change. In Jesus' name, amen.